Welcome to PQ Doc on Call, a podcast dedicated to current and aspiring intensivists. I'm Pradeep Kamal. And I'm Rahul Demania, and we're coming to you from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Emory University School of Medicine. Welcome to an episode of a nine-year-old girl with worsening seizures in setting of an electrolyte abnormality. Here is the case. A nine-year-old girl presents to the emergency department with increased frequency of seizures, dehydration, and listlessness. She has a history of global developmental delay, congenital hydrocephalus with the VP shunt in place, and her last revision of her shunt was three years prior. She has epilepsy treated with levetiracetam, and at baseline, she has one or two focal seizures per day. On day of admission, she had multiple prolonged seizures that were also generalized tonic-clonic in semiology. Per her caregiver, the patient usually eats by mouth, and mother typically gives her three cups of water daily. There is no history of diarrhea, but patient has had about two episodes of non-bloody, non-bilious emesis on day of presentation. Looking at her growth chart, the patient has also lost two kilograms of her weight in the last three months and has had poor follow-up with her primary care doctor. In the emergency department, she has a hypovolemic shock picture as she is hypothermic, tachycardic, tachypnic, and hypotensive with appropriate saturations. Her blood gas is notable for mild metabolic acidosis and patient receives abortive seizure rescue. A head CT shows no increase in hydrocephalus, no mass, no hemorrhage, and a shunt series confirms patency of her VP shunt. Most pertinently to this case, her serum sodium on her RFP was undetectable at a value of greater than 200 milliequivalents per liter. This was confirmed by a repeat lab draw and POC value. Other notable findings included an elevated creatinine for age, an elevated BUN, and a microcytic anemia. Patient was given a normal saline bolus, had cultures drawn for concurrent sepsis, and was started on broad-spectrum antibiotic therapy. She was further stabilized and sent to the PICU. To summarize key elements from this case, our patient has a history of global developmental delay with epilepsy and shunted hydrocephalus, a stigmata of cachexia, and a presentation of hypovolemic shock secondary to decreased intake, increased loss, and potential underlying concern for sepsis. The most important element of this case is her extreme hyponatremia, uh, serum sodium greater than 200 milliequivalents per liter. All of these factors in this case point to our topic of discussion today, the approach to hypovolemic hyponatremia secondary to severe dehydration. Let's transition into some history and physical exam components of hypovolemic hyponatremia. Key history features in patients who present with hypovolemic hypernatremia include increased losses such as emesis, decreased intake, and in this setting, potentially a lack of access to free water, listlessness, which could be related to cerebral hypoperfusion, Increase in seizure frequency due to rapid depolarization of sodium channels in the brain and fluid shifts and weight loss. All of these factors were seen in our patient case. 
Of note, I do want to highlight that if this patient was a neonate, considering a high-pitched cry in the setting of hypernatremia and dehydration could be a subtle history finding. Pradeep, are there some red flag symptoms or physical exam components which you could highlight? Yeah, our patient is nonverbal and has global developmental delay secondary to a remote neurological insult. So what this means is she may not have the ability to communicate or vocalize if she's thirsty. Apart from a mucous membranes, dry cracked lips, decreased skin turgor that can be described as doughy and prolonged cap refill, I think it is important to highlight her hypotension as blood pressure is one of the, the last vital signs in pediatrics to be abnormal in intravascular volume depletion. To me, what this means is this patient is in severe dehydration and has potentially in septic shock. This is a great point. Understanding that percent volume loss and its correlation to vital sign and physical exam anomalies is key. Remember, a sensitive marker for dehydration in pediatrics is tachycardia. And a late finding, if you are primarily dealing with dehydration, is hypotension. This indicates that counter-regulatory responses are unable to maintain adequate systemic vascular resistance and that there is a significant loss of intravascular volume. In our patient, we noticed her weight loss on presentation, which not only brings up the concern for malnutrition, but it also serves as an adjunct measure for the diagnosis of dehydration. In fact, in a 2009 paper assessing dehydration in pediatrics, it was noted that the gold standard for confirming the diagnosis of hypovolemia in children is comparison of body weight before and after rehydration. So Rahul, to continue with our case, our patient's labs were consistent with one, severe hypernatremia, two, elevated BUN and creatinine, which point to an acute kidney injury, and interestingly, mild anemia. Uh, this anemia could be a nutritional aberrancy, such as iron deficiency anemia or an anemia of chronic disease in the setting of a complex underlying condition. But it is important as intensivists for us to remember that anytime a patient has hypovolemic shock and anemia, we always need to think about bleeding. There's some bleeding inside uh, in the retroperitoneal area or in the abdomen that is not visible outside. And why this is important is because it's going to direct the type of fluid or blood products or blood that we need to give to this patient. Correct. It is important to highlight that in the setting of dehydration, hematocrit values would actually be increased. In a 2006 study in transfusion, Valerian colleagues concluded that hematocrit values in hypovolemic anemic patients are elevated because the plasma volume does not increase proportionately to achieve the normal volemic anemic state. So to summarize, we have a nine-year-old with global developmental delay who has emesis, dehydration, and a serum sodium of 200 MEQs per liter. This brings us to the topic of our discussion today, namely hypernatremia in the pediatric intensive care unit. Let's start with a short multiple choice question. A 15-year-old patient with a history of diabetes insipidus presents with the serum sodium of 175. Four months ago, her serum sodium was 140. Currently, the patient is obtunded with decreased skin turgor, fever, and a blood pressure of 140 over 80. The patient has been stressed due to schoolwork and has not been compliant with the home medication Desmopressin, 
resulting in polyuria for almost five days. Of the following, treatment goal for this patient is going to be A, reduced serum sodium concentration to normal in the first 12 hours, reduce serum sodium concentration to normal in 24 hours, reduce serum sodium concentration to 150 in 24 hours, or D, reduce serum sodium concentration by 10 milliequivalents per liter in 24 hours. Rahul, this is an excellent multiple choice question. And the correct answer is D, reduce serum concentration by 10 to 12 MEQs per liter in the first 24 hours. You can also think of this as not correcting the sodium more than 0.5 MEQ per liter per hour. Thus, in 24 hours, you should not lower the sodium by more than 12 milliequivalents per liter. I think listeners should remember that it is important to gradually lower the sodium in patients who have, have developed hypernatremia slowly over a period of days, especially when the sodium is greater than 165 milliequivalents per liter. Pradeep, why is this? Now, Rahul, you have to remember that patients with hypernatremia develop idiogenic osmols to protect the brain from dehydration within hours. Numerous fatal cases of cerebral edema and herniation have occurred with rapid correction over a 24-hour period, leading to recommendations for correction over no less than 48 hours. The general trend is for slow correction over 48 hours. A mnemonic that can be useful in this scenario is that high to low, the brain will blow, which translates to if a patient has chronic hypernatremia that is corrected too acutely, you have the potential to develop cerebral edema. In a landmark study published in NEJM in 2015, the authors concluded that rapid correction of hypernatremia can lead to cerebral edema due to the relative inability of the brain to extrude these idiogenic osms. Furthermore, a study published in Pediatric Emergency Care in 2013 showed that serum sodium correction greater than the proposed rate of 0.5 milliequivalents per liter per hour was associated with increased risk of mortality and convulsion in neonates who presented with hypernatremic dehydration admitted to the neonatal intensive care unit. Rahul, what would be some of the anatomic changes seen in the brain due to resultant hyperosmolarity from hypernatremia? Anatomic changes seen with the hyperosmolar state include loss of volume of brain cells with resultant tearing of cerebral vessels due to local extracellular matrix shear stress forces. As you have an imbalance in Frank Starling capillary mechanics and subsequent flow through your cerebral vasculature, you may also see capillary and venous congestion. You will also see associated subcortical or subarachnoid bleeding and interestingly, venous sinus thrombosis. I'd like to make a big point about the phenomena of sinus venous thrombosis as this has been well described in pediatric review articles. Let's take it back to the basics. Remember, Verkau's triad gives us a framework on how to think about mechanisms of thromboses. During hypernatremic dehydration, at a micro level, there is endothelial stress and subsequent endothelial injury, which can lead to venous sinus thrombosis. These patients can present with altered mental status, severe headache, as well as seizures. Rahul, 
That was a great framework. As we conclude our podcast today, let's hone in on three areas. A schema in understanding hypernatremia, a diagnostic approach to hypernatremia, and finally, a management framework. In general, how do you think about hypernatremia? I think, Pradeep, one easy way to approach hypernatremia is to think of it as a water loss problem or a salt gain problem. Hypernatremia can exist as any one of the following three scenarios, and these are actually all correlated to total body water. So let's go through these scenarios. First, you may have low total body water. Patients with low total body water and hypernatremia have a increased loss of water in relative excess of sodium losses. And this can occur from vomiting, diarrhea, renal losses, especially from osmotic diuresis. The second scenario is when you actually have normal total body water and you're hypernatremic. Loss of water occurs without excessive sodium losses in this condition. Some of these patients are going to be relatively euvolemic. Extra renal losses result from increased respiratory losses, which may occur with tachypnea, hyperventilation, or maybe your ventilator has an inadequate humidification system. But we can also think about further insensible loss scenarios, such as transcutaneous losses from burns, fever, extreme prematurity, or radiant warmers in a neonate without adequate water replacement. In general, another well-described cause of euvolemic hypernatremia is diabetes insipidus, which can actually be a podcast in and of itself. Finally, we think about increases in total body sodium and subsequent total body water. Usually, this can be from iatrogenic causes, such as administration of sodium bicarb, hypertonic saline, or improperly concentrated infant formula. In a 2017 systematic review, the authors looked at acute sodium toxicity due to dietary intake. They cited factors such as social media challenges and even charities that advocated eating small amount of salt to empathize with Syrian refugees. They actually concluded that a lethal dose of salt could be as little as five teaspoons that would be ingested acutely and that can lead to pediatric fatality. So Pradeep, if you had to work up a patient with hypernatremia, what would be your diagnostic approach? Rahul, I would suggest uh, getting a nephrology consult in any patient who has such extreme hypernatremia. Uh, for basic labs, I would send a comprehensive metabolic panel, uh, a urine analysis. It is important to remember that uh, when you send the urine analysis, the first urine specimen that you get is the most important because it's going to give you good information about uh, the specific gravity and uh, concentration of the urine. If you're suspecting diabetes insipidus, getting urine sodium and electrolytes may be indicated. In this uh, patient case, she presented with increased seizures and altered sensorium. Thus, a computed scan of the head is recommended to evaluate for hemorrhage and uh, shunt malfunction. Due to her hypothermia, there should be a high suspicion for infection. So a blood culture, a urine culture, a complete blood count with differential a C-reactive protein, and even a Procal uh, would be useful. As this child has concern for increased catabolism in the setting of failure to thrive and lack of access, getting uh, a CPK to rule out rhabdomyolysis, 
as a cause of intrinsic AKI uh, would be useful. And finally, a renal ultrasound may be necessary based on laboratory and urinary findings. I like this list, Pradeep. I totally agree that a coordinated effort with nephrology can help in this setting as these patients may have renal dysfunction and there can be a collaborative effort in tracking electrolytes after we choose the appropriate rehydration fluid management. I would also recommend tracking weights as part of your initial diagnostic plan. Our history and physical investigational undertaking has led us to severe hypernatremia as our diagnosis. Pradeep, what would be your general management framework? Rahul, the first step uh, when this patient presents to the ER is resuscitation. Every attempt uh, should be made to correct uh, hypotension, ASAP, protection of airway, and if necessary, using uh, anti-epileptic drugs uh, such as lorazepam to control seizures. If this patient is intubated, I would recommend continuous EEG to make uh, sure that patient is not having subclinical seizures till electrolyte problems are corrected. And more importantly, correction of any underlying disease process giving rise to hypernatremia should be our goal. In our case, it was dehydration due to lack of access to free water. So as we mentioned earlier, gradual correction of serum hypernatremia, about 12 to 15 MEQs per liter per day is what we should strive for. Frequent monitoring of serum sodium, I would at least recommend uh, every two hours initially, but then can space out later depending on patient's uh, serum sodium and urine output. As hypernatremia is toxic to the beta islet cells in the pancreas, their dysfunction can lead to associated hyperglycemia, which will correct itself as the serum sodium is slowly brought to a lower level. We should also remember that patient may have deficits ongoing maintenance requirements and losses that need to be gradually corrected. I generally don't like complex calculations, but depending on this patient's severity, I would recommend at least two to two and a half times maintenance IV fluids would be necessary. And the IV fluid that I would recommend is a normal saline, especially in a patient whose sodium is close to 200. In a precise academic approach, Calculating the free water deficit may be helpful. The equation is 0.6 times the body weight in kilos times the current sodium divided by 140 minus 1. And this will give you the liter of fluids to be used. In acute dehydration, you can take this fluid deficit and resuscitate 50% of the volume you calculate in the first 12 hours and the remaining in the next 24 hours as a potential management strategy. Now, all this thing will be provided in the script for this podcast. So if you miss this formula or calculation, do not worry about it. It's already provided in the script. If a patient has central diabetes insipidus, vasopressin, DDAVP, along with replacement of urine output may be needed. Sometimes the help of endocrinology colleagues may also be required in the management of diabetes insipidus. In hyponatremic dehydration, the intracellular fluid moves into the extravascular space due to hyponatremia, hence patient's dehydration may be underestimated. If the patient has renal failure, consult with nephrology colleagues as dialysis may be necessary. That was a great management framework. And to summarize today's episode, remember, chronic hypernatremia 
you don't want to correct too quickly. You want to isolate the cause and correct slowly. The magic number is no more than 0.5 milliequivalents per liter per hour with a max of 12 to 15 in 24 hours. And this is all to prevent cerebral edema. Remember, high to low, the brain will blow. Finally, as nephrologists will classically say, sodium problems reflect total body water problems. So you can use this paradigm in your approach to hypernatremia. This concludes our episode on hypernatremia. We hope you found value in a short case-based podcast. We welcome you to share your feedback, subscribe, and place a review on our podcast. Please visit our website, pqdoconcall.org, which showcases our episodes as well as our Doc on Call management cards. PQ Doc on Call is hosted by me, Pradeep Kamath, and my co-host, Dr. Rahul Dimania. Stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you.